Hello everyone, you are listening to the London Council's Let's Talk About podcast. My name is Caroline Dawes, I'm the Head of Children's Services here at London Councils and today we are going to talk about the financial pressures facing London's children's services with my guest Natalie Parrish, Director of ISOS Partnership. Hello Natalie. Hello. As many listeners will know, children's services across London are struggling to cope with unprecedented funding pressures. We at London Councils asked ISOS Partnership and Natalie to undertake some research for us into the drivers behind these pressures and to identify ways of easing this pressure for London boroughs. So firstly, Natalie, could you say a bit about why, in your opinion, the research was needed? Yes, of course. This was an interesting piece of research and it felt very timely. This was because councils have been coming forward and reporting increasing pressure on different aspects of their budgets, in particular, the bit of their budget that pays for children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, and the aspect of their budget that pays for children and young people who require the support of children's social care. So with these messages coming from councils, we felt, and London councils felt, that there was a real need to understand what was causing that. What were the pressures stemming from? Secondly, there was a need then to address a question, well, what can councils do about it? And beyond that, what might national government also need to do to address these pressures? Finally, it felt like this was something that was very interesting uh, to look at in the context of London. London is obviously unique in terms of the number of local authorities who are all within a relatively small geographical area. This creates some quite interesting market dynamics in terms of both workforce and the purchasing of places for children and young people in children's social care or in special schools. Looking forward to the solutions, you also in London have huge potential for collaboration with so many local authorities working together within the same environment and within the same city. What was your approach to carrying out the research? The ambition of this research was that it would draw on the experiences of those who are working within uh, children's services in London boroughs. So we constructed it with a sort of bottom-up methodology which had both a quantitative and a qualitative dimension. In terms of the quantitative side of things, London Councils over a number of years has compiled a very rich and comprehensive data set of financial information and performance information that all the London boroughs contribute to. So this gave us a fantastic starting point. We were able to analyse that and try and look at trends in the data on expenditure, trends in the data on on the needs of the children and young people who are coming to uh, the attention of London boroughs and look at how things have changed, particularly over the last four years. From the quantitative side of things, this was based on a fieldwork methodology. So we identified 14 local authorities who were selected to provide a broad spectrum in terms of a range of different contextual factors, including levels of expenditure, but also around uh, deprivation, size, uh, political control within uh, within the council, and and geography within London. The 14 fieldwork local authorities were then asked to host a fieldwork visit. Just out of interest, did you have any elected members as part of those discussions? In a couple of local authorities we did. We left it up to the local authorities to decide who would be available on the day and who might be able to contribute most to the research. What are the headlines from the research in terms of spend across children's services in London? Well, interestingly, the research found slightly different pictures for high needs expenditure and children's social care expenditure. So I'll deal with each in turn. For high needs expenditure, there was a very similar picture in London to what we see 
happening elsewhere in the country. We were seeing the number of children, young people with education, health and care plans increasing, as were the number of young people who are subject to exclusion from school. Alongside those trends, the proportion of children, young people who are educated in the special sector as opposed, as opposed to the mainstream sector was going up. All of these trends were creating a significant pressure on budgets. Overall, it looked as though London councils were spending around about £77 million more in 2017-18 on high needs and special educational needs than they had in their budgets for that area of expenditure. So that was creating a pressure of around 7% overspend. In contrast, for children's social care, the expenditure in London has actually grown slightly more slowly than it has in other parts of the country, at around about 5% over the four years. But nonetheless, budgets are still not sufficient to cover the extent of expenditure, and London boroughs were facing an overspend in 2017-18 of around 108 million, or around about 9% of their budgets. In children's social care, we saw quite a high degree of variation between boroughs in terms of both their per capita expenditure and the extent to which expenditure had grown over the period. In terms of high needs, although there was variation, that was less significant than it was for children's social care. If you took both areas of expenditure as a whole, in 2017-18, the total overspend was around about £185 million in London. So obviously a very significant issue. So Natalie, what do you think are the reasons for these pressures across London? Unsurprisingly, it's neither straightforward nor simple. There are quite a wide range of factors which are contributing to the increased need to spend. Firstly, we see some changes in policy and legislation which are directly affecting children's social care and high needs, which are having an impact on local authorities' need to spend in these areas. The Children and Families Act introduced in 2015 made some very wide-ranging changes in policy for children and young people with special educational needs. Some of these included rightly raising the expectations and ambitions for what we hope that these children and young people will achieve. They also put parents right at the heart of the system and they extended the age range in which children and young people uh, might qualify and benefit for, from an, an education, health and care plan right up to the age of 25. Now all of these changes have had the net effect of increasing the number of children and young people who are both applying for and getting education, health and care plans, and increasing the age range uh, for which local authorities are responsible, which obviously has a, a significant impact on expenditure. In children's social care, there have been less wide-ranging changes, but nonetheless some quite significant policy moves. First of all, there has been an extension of responsibility up to the age of 25 for children and young people who are leaving care. Secondly, local authorities have become responsible for paying for the places for children and young people on remand, which is becoming increasingly costly as both the length of remand placements and the complexity of some of the young people who are taking those places increases. The second area in which we can see changes happening is in the broader funding and policy landscape. 
A number of directors of children's services spoke to us about the impact of austerity, not just on their own children's services budgets, but on the budgets of partners who contribute directly to outcomes for children and young people. So they talked about how partners in health or the police or schools might be less able to put in some of that early preventative work, which means that children and young people then are less likely to come to the attention of children's social care or indeed to the high end of special educational needs services. Some of the other funding and policy landscape changes that were impacting on the need to spend were around inclusion. So one of the trends we've seen in London and nationally is the, num the growing number of children and young people who've been excluded from mainstream schools and who are therefore being educated in alternative provision, which contributes to a direct pressure on the high needs block, which is where expenditure for children and young people with special educational needs is funded from. Another issue that we've seen is some of the pressures around asylum and immigration. This is a particular issue in children's social care where London local authorities are providing services and in many cases accommodation for unaccompanied asylum seeking children. These numbers have grown quite considerably over recent years and the systems for distributing these children and young people across the country are not working as well as they might. This means that a disproportionate burden of financing the cost of these places falls on London local authorities. The third big area of change which is contributing to rising costs is around demographic and societal influences. So a number of boroughs spoke to us about the changing face of poverty, the number of families who are in employment but where that employment doesn't cover all their needs and where the life of families is being negatively impacted by the fact that families are under financial pressure and that parents might be working very long hours and not necessarily always able uh, to provide the support and care for their children that they would wish to. Certainly directors of children's services were saying that families who had never previously come to the attention of children's social care were now needing a greater degree of support than they had previously. Another demographic trend which is leading to higher costs is around population mobility. This is particularly an issue in London where we have a number of families who might move between boroughs and this can create pressures on services, it can create pressure in terms of the continuity of support that's able to be provided and can place real pressure as well on housing where there is a lack of affordable, available housing for families and creates its own momentum in terms of families who are not necessarily coping as well as they might and who need then extra support and help from the state. The final demographic or societal trend that it's worth pointing to is some of the changes in the nature of special educational needs which the boroughs are reporting. Certainly there seems to be a growth in the number of children and young people who are coming through the education system with more complex medical needs. The other big trend is around the rise in children and young people with autistic spectrum disorders. The authorities that we spoke to were not able to say why this was happening, but they could point to it as a very clear trend that the numbers were going up and that this was creating a pressure on having the right type of places as well as being able to afford 
to provide the, the support that this growing cohort of children and young people might need. The fourth area of change which is having an impact on the need to spend on children's social care and on high needs is around the marketplace both for placements and for professionals. As I said right at the start, London is quite unique in having a lot of different local authorities within a limited geographical area, all if you like competing for the same places or for the same professionals. What you can see happening is at the high end, um, those children and young people who need the most complex or the most specialist places are becoming increasingly difficult to find appropriate placements for. We also see trends in terms of those who are providing places, either in children's homes or in very specialist uh, independent special schools, sometimes becoming more selective about the children young people who they say that they are able to support. This means that those places at the very highest end are becoming increasingly high cost. And certainly within children's social care, the numerical data suggested that residential placements for looked after children had increased by around about 14% over the last, uh, the cost of them had increased by around 14% over the last three to four years. At the same time, we see the capacity for supporting children in less intensive, less complex placements being quite constrained. So for children's social care, the number of in-house foster carers that local authorities are able to draw on is becoming quite constrained, not least through the lack of affordable family housing and because local authorities are increasingly competing with independent fostering providers in terms of who will be supporting and managing the foster carers. For high needs and special educational needs, we also see a real bottleneck around capacity in maintained special schools where increasingly local authorities are reporting that those schools are full and that they don't necessarily have any alternative but to place children and young people in more costly independent and non-maintained places which tend to be further away from the young person's home. So what are local authorities in London doing about the, the challenges they're facing in terms of financial pressure? It was really encouraging that when we went to the different local areas who took part in this research, we saw some really good, promising practice that local authorities were putting in place to try and mitigate some of the cost pressures that they were facing. Certainly, strong leadership was a critical component of this. So the ability of leaders within local authorities to create that sort of coalition around the budget pressures that they were facing so that partners would see those pressures as shared pressures and that there was an ability to come up with some shared solutions. It's also important to note that those local areas which had managed to achieve a really strong grip on their system in terms of the quality of casework, the consistency of assessments and the quality of decision-making around children and young people's placements and support tended to see lower per capita costs than those where that grip on the system was less effective. I think thirdly, it's, it's really worth 
emphasising the importance of good quality early intervention, both for children and young people who are at risk of coming to the attention of children's social care and for those who have special educational needs. We saw some fantastic examples of local authorities developing a really high quality graduated response for children and young people with special educational needs, which meant that they could be educated really successfully in their local mainstream school. And that was very positive for the young people, for the families, and also in cost terms for the borough. In terms of children's social care, we saw some very effective early help systems in operation where a number of different partners would come together to try and work with children and families at a point in their lives when difficulties and challenges had not become entrenched with a view to keeping those children and young people out of statutory intervention. We also saw some excellent practice around commissioning and market shaping with local authorities increasingly working together to see how they might both commission more effectively and interact constructively with providers to ensure that the right placements were available at the right time for the young people who needed them. And then finally, we saw some very creative work being done at the edge of thresholds. So where children and young people might be at imminent risk of becoming looked after, or where they might be at imminent risk of requiring a very costly residential placement at a very significant distance from their families. We saw local authorities being able to work creatively with partners in the system to say, how can we create a bespoke solution for this young person which meets their needs better and which comes at a lesser cost to the overall public purse than the very high cost intervention that might previously have been turned to. Is there anything that surprised you when you were carrying out the research interviews? I'm not sure I exactly describe it as being surprised, but I was really fascinated by some of the things we found around the interface between the areas of special, edu special educational needs and children's social care. What we saw was that the same forces are shaping expenditure across both areas of policy and practice. So some of the bigger demographic and societal trends that I was referring to earlier were having their impact felt equally in terms of children's social care and high needs. We were also seeing that some of the decisions taken in one area of policy and practice can then have a significant effect on the other. So to take a concrete example, we had a number of heads of children's social care talking to us about the increasing number of children and young people who had either been permanently excluded or placed on fixed term exclusions or placed on part-time timetables and the impact that that then had on their home life and how that could sometimes be the trigger for a family who was just about coping to suddenly become a family who was no longer coping and could be the trigger for that young person perhaps being taken into care or requiring a child protection plan. So it was very interesting how trends and decisions we saw primarily in the education sector were then coming across into the children's social care sector and vice versa. It was also interesting that there was quite a significant overlapping population between 
those children and young people who had special educational needs of some type or another, and those children and young people who were coming to the attention of children's social care, either children and young people requiring protection um, or those who were looked after. And in some cases, these overlapping populations also sp spanned generations. So local authorities would talk to us about families where the learning disabilities or the mental health difficulties of parents were having a direct impact on their children and that was requiring support both from those who were managing special educational needs practice and those who were working within children's social care. So it was very interesting how some of these different areas of policy and practice were colliding and it felt like quite a fruitful area of future work and attention to look a bit more at some of these overlapping populations and some of these decisions that have knock-on impacts in other areas of council policy. Um, you've talked us through the findings from the research and now can we move on to the recommendations. So what were the key recommendations that emerged from the interviews for local authorities? Well, we came up with a number of recommendations for local authorities acting individually and some of these might seem quite obvious but it is important for local authorities not to forget about doing the basics really well in order to continue to mitigate some of these cost pressures. So that relates to some of the core casework assessment and decision making functions that we referred to earlier about stringent financial management and importantly about leaders who are able to forge those coalitions of partners so that these budgetary pressures are seen as shared issues and that there is creativity in creating shared solutions. Beyond the work that local authorities can do to run a tight ship, we also felt that there was more that boroughs could do to break down some of the internal silos within their areas of policy and practice to ensure that there aren't decisions taken in one bit of the council which then impact negatively on the finances of another bit of the council. So again to take a concrete example, some local authorities talk to us about the difficulties where families might be made homeless on account of ongoing rent arrears which then might place that family above the threshold for statutory intervention for children's social care and create a whole new set of financial pressures uh, within the council. So there is a need when taking some of these decisions to see the financial ramifications in their, in their entirety rather than just in terms of the financial implications for one bit of a council's business. Another area we thought that councils individually might look at is this issue about the overlapping nature of children young people who come to the attention of children's social care and those with special educational needs and whether there are a different set of interventions policies or practices that might need to be put in place for those young people that straggle both cohorts and then finally we saw as i said earlier some really fantastic practice in working with children, young people and their families differently and mitigating some of the highest costs that are associated uh, with these high needs. But 
councils were not always really tight at evaluating which of their innovative practices were working best and potentially the long-term financial impacts of some of these. So we would encourage councils alongside the really strong drive towards innovation that we're seeing to have an equally strong drive towards evaluation so that they can be confident in saying, this is what we did, this is the effect it had, and crucially, this is the impact on our expenditure going forward. You presented the research to a number of audiences recently, including directors of children's services and lead members for children of finance, and taken part in a number of discussions on how to take this work forward. Following these discussions, which areas do you think we at London Council should focus our efforts on? I think there are two main areas in the recommendations for local authorities and London councils acting together which would really benefit from focus and attention. The first is a number of recommendations which relate to effective commissioning. So the idea that boroughs within London might work more effectively together to commission places for children and young people, both in terms of special educational needs and children's social care, if they were able to collaborate on what that commissioning looked like, if they were able to commission some of those high cost and low incidence places together, and if they were able to have that dialogue with providers of these places to be more explicit about, these are the sorts of places we need, this is a sort of volumes that, that we're anticipating over the coming months and years and enable then the market to respond to some of that better information. There are already some very well established collaborative commissioning arrangements in place in parts of the capital, but it's quite uneven with some areas very well developed and well advanced in in their thinking and other areas with more nascent uh, arrangements in place. So we feel that there would be real benefit in using this opportunity to learn from the best of what is already going on so that other areas which might not be quite so advanced in their joint and collaborative commissioning practice can learn from, from what their, what their neighbours and other parts of the capital are doing. We also think that there's a real appetite for looking at how boroughs might work together around shaping a workforce strategy for those professionals whose skills are in high demand, but where we still see difficulties in recruitment and particularly, I think, difficulties in retention. So this is certainly skilled social workers um, and directors of children's services have said it's also the team manager level within social work, so not just entry level social workers, but those who have a number of years experience and who have the skills to manage a team. There are also constraints around educational psychologists, around speech and language therapies, and a number of other professionals whose work is absolutely critical to supporting children and young people in the capital. So the more the boroughs are able to work together, both to recruit these skilled professionals, but also importantly, once recruited, to provide the right training, career structure, and pathways to keep them in the profession, 
feels like it would really bear dividends over the long term. And do you have any recommendations around um, retention of staff? You just talked about how important it, it is to um, retain the kind of skilled um, middle managers, particularly in social work. I just wondered if there's anything there that you can say. When we've spoken to local authorities about this issue, not just in London, but more broadly around some of our research work, I think the factors which contribute to good retention are perhaps not that surprising that they do take consistent effort and energy to make sure that they're in place. So social workers, educational psychologists and others talk about the importance of being able to do high quality work with children. So not having all their time taken up with filling in forms or responding to bureaucratic requests or spending time in meetings. Most of these professionals are motivated to do their job because they value the interaction with children and their families. So finding time for that front-facing work. Secondly, there is an issue around workload and certainly there seems to be a trend that where professionals feel overwhelmed by their workload, too many cases, too many children, too many families and not enough support, then they may be inclined to vote with their feet and go and find employment elsewhere. So managing workload is critical. Thirdly then, there is something about training, career progression, giving professionals opportunities to pursue particular professional interests that they might have, perhaps combining periods of work and study, and feeling like there is a progression route for them within their careers. And finally, there is the importance of good management. I think a lot of councils would say to us that their skilled workers stay with them when they feel supported in their job, when their supervision is meaningful and allows them to develop as individuals, and where they feel like they work as part of a cohesive team. And we've recently had the welcome announcement from the Chancellor of additional funding for both special educational needs and for children's social care, as well as an announcement from the Department for Education that they will be holding a review of um, the SEM provision um, over the next six months. What more do you think the government should be doing now on this important agenda? I think the recent announcements are very welcome and it will be very interesting to see what the review of the special educational needs policy reveals. I think one of the priorities for the government going forward now should be to have a really sharp look at inclusion in its broadest sense as a priority. I think there were some really good recommendations that came out of the Timpson review and it would be interesting to see how the government is going to respond to those. But it would be helpful for the government now to ask itself the question, what would it take to make our education system really inclusive of all young people, keeping more young people in mainstream schools, looking at alternative provision very much as a gateway to get back into mainstream provision rather than an end in itself and looking quite widely at a wide range of influences such as the curriculum and measures of accountability such as progress aid and attainment aid and asking the question what do the what impact do these systems have 
on our most vulnerable learners. In addition to the area of inclusion, I would also really like to see government ramping up their funding for and focus on early intervention. It was certainly our feeling in doing this research that spending on children's social care in London was at a point of precariousness. A number of local authorities had put in place some really fantastic programmes to reduce the number of children who were coming to the attention of children's social care, to reduce the number of children who were becoming looked after safely, and to reduce the cost in these areas. But they'd done so through intelligent and well-constructed early interventions. And their message was unanimous that if they were not able to continue to invest in these programmes, then we would very quickly see a considerable ramping up of those most vulnerable children and young people, those who uh, require child protection or those who, who become looked after. So really continuing to focus on early intervention, I think the continuation of the Troubled Families grant is very welcome, but really this is an area where long-term funding makes a real difference. Thank you. It's um, interesting you mentioned inclusion because that's a priority of us for us at London Councils. Um, we've got a report coming out in the next two weeks on inclusive practice, which highlights a number of good, good practice examples we've identified across London. Um, so do look out for that. Um, so Natalie, if we could take only one recommendation forward, which one would you suggest we prioritise? I think the recommendation that felt most urgent to me was around finding the appropriate solutions for what we call a hard-to-place older age cohort of children and young people. So these were typically children and young people who would be in their late teenage years, who were suffering from a range of different vulnerabilities that might be behavioural issues, special educational needs, mental health issues, exploitation from criminal activity, or indeed engaging in violent and criminal activity themselves. And a number of local authorities spoke to us about the difficulty of finding the right support and placements for this cohort of young people, whether they present themselves either as children young people with complex special educational needs, or as children young people who are becoming looked after, or indeed both. We spoke to directors of children's services and heads of children's social care who said, if I could simplify the characteristics of this group, if they had a young man come to their attention who was around the age of 15 or 16, who might have a history of challenging behaviour and perhaps absconding from a previous placement, who was requiring a looked-after placement on a Friday afternoon. Sometimes they might need to contact 100, 150 different providers before they would find a suitable placement for that young person. And that feels wrong. I think it's an interesting recommendation because a number of directors of children's services were really frank with us and said, actually, for this cohort, they didn't feel that they necessarily knew actually what was exactly the right type of placement to be asking for. And certainly this doesn't seem to be an area where the market left to its own devices is responding and 
creating new opportunities that meet the needs of these young people. And of course, the impact of not getting this right for the young person in question, but more, but more broadly in terms of uh, adolescent crime um, and adolescent vulnerability is really critical. So this felt like an area where outcomes are not as good as they might be, costs are extremely high, and there is a lot of wasted effort at the moment in pursuing something that doesn't seem to exist. So if boroughs could come together and think differently with those who, who provide solutions in the marketplace about what might we do for this very hard to place cohort of young people, I think that would be extremely positive. Thank you, Natalie. Um, we will sh be sure to take on board what you've been saying. Um, it, I think um, the report's been um, really well um, received by the sector, and we've hoped to take forward a number of key recommendations, working collaboratively across London local government, um, with directors of children's services, with elected members, with a whole range of different partners. Um, and it's worth keeping an eye on the London Council's website. We'll be putting up regular updates um, about how this work is going. Um, so that brings us to the end of another London Council's Let's Talk About podcast. I've been Caroline Jaws. Thanks again to our guest, Natalie Parrish, and thank you for listening. <laughs>